Charlie Plum was a fighter pilot for the U.S. Navy, and he fought in the Vietnam War. One night, his plane took a hit, and he had to parachute in the jungle, where he eventually made it back to a safe place. Well, many years later, after he'd come back home and retired from the service, one night, uh, Charlie and his wife were sitting in a restaurant enjoying a meal when a stranger approached and said, How you doing, Plum? Charlie sat up right away and thought, Do I know this guy? And the stranger could tell right away by the reaction on Charlie's face that he didn't recognize him, so this man kept talking to try to clear things up. He said, you flew jets in Vietnam, right? Yeah. And you flew off the aircraft carrier, the Kitty Hawk, right? Yeah. And you got shot down one night, right? Yeah. And, and Charlie just sat there and just kept nodding his head. And finally, Charlie said, how do you know all this? And the man said, I was on the Kitty Hawk, too. I packed your parachute. Guess it worked, didn't it? Then the man smiled and shook his hand and moved on, and Charlie never saw him again. Charlie Plum was deeply troubled by that conversation. I mean, he couldn't finish his meal. He couldn't sleep all night. Out of the blue, he met a man he thought he'd never met before, but then he discovered this man had played a significant role in his life. If that guy had not packed the parachute in just the right way, Charlie wouldn't, be, wouldn't even be alive. So all night long, as Charlie Plum is lying in his bed, he's tossing and turning because he keeps thinking about this stranger. How many times did I pass by this guy on the ship and I didn't even bother to talk to him because I just thought he was another sailor. And yet because of the careful work done by that sailor, my life was saved. Who packs your parachute? Don't ever be so arrogant as to think that you got to this point in your life all by yourself because you didn't. All along the way, there's been all kinds of other people helping and supporting and working behind the scenes and attending to details that, that you weren't even aware of, fixing things and making things right so you could be a success. But have you ever taken the time to recognize who those people are? And have you ever taken the time to thank them? We're going to look at a scripture today, the last part of Acts chapter 9, where we learn that in God's church there are pilots and then there are those who pack parachutes. And yet because of the kind of roles that they play, it's easy to see the one and not notice the other. You know, some people, just because of the kind of role they play, the role is much more visible. It's easy to see what they do. It's easy to be impressed with what they do. It's the pilots who seem to get all the medals and all the recognition. But don't be fooled. Don't think the pilots are better than anybody else because in God's church, they're not. In fact, those pilots couldn't even begin to get in the plane unless there were all kinds of people quietly working in the background carefully packing their shoes. For example, this scripture that we're going to say today, it's easy to see who the pilot is. It's the Apostle Paul. And he's front and center on everything. And we get inspired as we watch him fight all these battles for the Lord. He lives a heroic life. But you've got to understand, he's not carrying out this ministry on his own. He's got all kinds of help. When you read slowly and you look closely all the way through the text, you'll see all kinds of people working around Paul. Some of them are named, some of them are not named, but he's got a whole army of people when he's at the church in Damascus, as we'll read in verses 19-25, or whether he's working with the church down here in the city of Jerusalem, verses 26-30, to 30, he's got a whole army of people helping him to stay on mission for the Lord. And the lesson we learn from the text is this, you can't follow Jesus by yourself. You just can't. You were made to be a part of a church, and without the help and support of that church, you can't expect to live the kind of life that God wants you to live. We see this truth verified again and again in a number of different ways. For example, up at South Bend, the University of Notre Dame, there's a professor by the name of Christian Smith, and he's been doing, he, he works in the field of sociology. He's been doing this nationwide study on young people and religion. I mean, the study's been going on for years, and he's written all kinds of books to tell about the results that they found. Well, one of the crucial insights that's coming out of this research is this, that the teenagers who keep their faith, 
you know, as they move on from home, they go to college and then head on to their career. They, they, they never leave the church. All through the years, they just keep growing in their faith as they move into their adult life. Well, there's a reason for that. The research shows one of the reasons why they keep the faith is because their parents remain heavily involved in their lives, constantly influencing and encouraging them to stay true to the Lord. But then the other interesting thing about the research, it wasn't just the parents who made the difference. These teenagers who kept the faith through the years, they had a second tier, a second level of relationships. Other adults connected to them. Other adults who had permission to speak in their lives. Because through the years, these were adults that these young people came to respect and admire. And they would frequently turn to them for support and help and advice. They were adults that young people came to trust because in a number of different ways, throughout the years, those, young, those adults showed how much they were involved in their lives and showed how much they cared for them. So whenever those adults would open up, begin to share their advice, or open up and begin to share their wisdom, those teenagers were all ears. In other words, the research shows that those kids, they did not grow up by accident. They kept the faith, not only because their parents were there, but all through the years, they were constantly surrounded by all kinds of godly men and women who just kept pouring into them, who just continually were helping and supporting and encouraging them to move in the right direction. What does it say? What's the common phrase today? It takes a village to raise a child. Well, the Bible teaches it takes a church to raise a Christian. We all need that kind of shelter. Now think about this. Uh, many times I hear this expression, he lived a sheltered life. And a lot of times we hear that in a negative way, right? We think about that kid who was pampered his whole life, never had to do a thing for himself. Everything was handed to him on a silver platter. Never learned how to wash his own clothes or make his own bed or cook his own food. His mama did it, for, uh, did it all the time for him. Now here he is, 26 years of age, and he's got to go out on his own, and he's totally unprepared for life in the real world. Naive, inexperienced, not ready for any of these responsibilities that are about to be dumped on his shoulders. He's never had to struggle, never had to deal with any of the hard knocks of real life. He's unprepared. Why? he live a sheltered life. And we generally say that. We, we speak of it in a shameful way. He got the wrong kind of shelter. That's not what we're talking about here. I'm talking about the good kind of shelter. I'm talking about the kind of shelter that every driver in the Indy 500 needs. He can't drive that race by himself. So what do you see? Constantly throughout the race, he pulls into the pits. We're instantly surrounded by a crew, a whole team of people who are ready to go to bat for him, ready to repair and refuel and put on a fresh set of wheels so he can get back out in the track and compete and do more than that, not just compete, but have a chance to win. I'm talking about the kind of shelter that every pilot needs when he's flying into Atlanta and he realizes he can't reach that destination on his own. I mean, there's a hundred other planes flying in at that very same moment, planes that he, had, he can't even begin to see, and they're all wanting to land in the same spot. Man, you talk about an accident waiting to happen. So if he wants to be, come in safely, if he wants to have a safe landing, that pilot's got to lean on the counsel that he gets from the man in the tower. He's trusting that man in the tower to provide shelter for himself and all the passengers on the plane, to give him the right directions, to bring him into the right speed, to bring him into the right altitude so he can successfully land the plane. I'm talking about the kind of shelter that every kid needs when they come home after a rough day from school. The dads and moms probably never hear the actual stories about the bullies, the bullies on the bus or the embarrassing mistake that their child made that day in gym class. Now everybody in school is laughing at them. Dad and mom probably never hear those stories. But know this, throughout the course of the day, there's been all kinds of emotional bumps and bruises. So by the time the kid gets home, they need a place of refuge. They need all kinds of TLC so that by the very end of the day, when they finally go to bed, they can lay their head on the pillow with this confidence. I'm not alone in this world. I have a family watching out for me. That's the kind of shelter that God is going to provide for the Apostle Paul. 
when he gets in trouble up here in the city of Damascus and he provides that shelter through the church that rallies around him. And when he gets it, that's verses 19 and 25 and then down to verses 26 to 30, same kind of shelter God's going to provide through the church of Jerusalem. And once again, Paul finds himself in, in, a, in a mess, in, a, in, a, in the midst of a trial. And God's going to have the people rally around. And it's the same kind of shelter every one of us needs if we're going to be able to follow Jesus in a wicked and dangerous world. Take a look at this with me. Let's see what we can learn. Going to start at the very last part of verse 19. Acts chapter 9 says, for some days. We don't know how many days that was. It, obviously more than a few. We're talking about a significant period of time. For some days, Paul was with. He just with. Get this. He's not doing anything. Right now, he doesn't need to do anything. He needs to just be with, just to enjoy the company, enjoy the presence of these Christians at the church of Damascus. He just needs to be absorbing from them right now. So for a significant period of time, for a number of days, Paul's with the disciples at Damascus. See, here's a group of Christians who right now providing shelter for Paul at a point in his life when Paul needs that shelter. Remember the early part of Acts chapter 9? He's just met Jesus. He's just been converted. He's a brand new Christian. He's still trying to process what all this means. I mean, uh, you know, all these changes starting to occur in and around his life. And what does that mean for me? What does that mean for my future? So here's a group of Christians, a group of people who've committed themselves to watching out for Paul at a point in time when Paul needs that group of people watching out for him. I mean, he just left his former life. He's no longer persecuting the church. He switched sides. He's joined the church, which means all those old friends are going to start pulling away. Hey, Paul, what happened to you? You're not acting like you used to. What's up with this? I'm not sure I like this. Hey, forget you. And they begin to leave. They begin to abandon him. Suddenly, here's the Apostle Paul at a fragile moment in his life when he could suddenly be without any friends at all. A brand new Christian entering into a whole new environment, a whole new world. And he has no clue what to expect next. He needs shelter. Think of it like this. Think of an infant in the nursery at the hospital. And as soon as that child's born, what happens? Immediately surrounded by a team of nurses attending to every need of that child. Surrounded by a team of nurses wearing the mask, sterilizing everything in the environment to protect that tiny baby from any virus, any germ. And as soon as that child is born, immediately surrounded and embraced by a new family. Feeding, clothing, hugging, holding, talking, singing to the child. Because unless the child gets that kind of love and attention, they will not grow. They will not flourish. Well, so it is for Paul. He's a babe in Christ. He needs the shelter. He needs to just be with the disciples at Damascus. Christians who will surround him and talk and teach and answer questions and show him what it really means to follow Jesus. Well, after being in this kind of healthy environment for a significant period of time, watch the results. Verse 20. Now Paul's ready to hit the streets and begin to go to work for the Lord. He's ready to serve Jesus. So it says... And immediately, with a, with a great sense of urgency, it's what the word means, Paul goes out to talk about Jesus. He goes to every one of the synagogues. Damascus is a big place. Got these places of learning, these places of worship all over town. He goes to every one of them. Hey, you need to know who Jesus really is. He is the Son of God. And how do the people react? Verse 21, and all who heard him were amazed. Hey, I never expected to hear this out of the mouth of that guy. I mean, isn't this the one, isn't this the fellow who tried to make havoc? Tried to wreck and ruin the church down there in the city of Jerusalem? Isn't he the one who's made his mission in life, tried to wipe out this moon of people that whenever they come together, they worship in the name of Jesus? And hasn't he come here to this city, the city of Damascus, for the same purpose, to arrest Christians, to bind them, so he can take them back down to Jerusalem, and they have to stand trial before the chief priests? Man, how do you explain this radical about face in this guy's life? And as they're puzzling and trying to figure this out, notice what we read about Saul. But Saul... And keep in mind, in Bible times, people generally had at least three names. 
Sometimes he's called Saul, sometimes he's called Paul. We're not sure what the third name was. Uh, but we're talking about the same guy here. But Saul, all this is going on, he just keeps growing. He increases all the more in strength. Why? Because he's not doing this by himself. Every day when he's out there in the streets serving the Lord, every day he continues to be loved and supported and helped and encouraged by all the disciples there at Damascus. So every day he goes out to one of these synagogues to talk about Jesus, and he constantly confounded. That's how it's written in the Greek. He just constantly confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus because he was proving. And the word prove means to put together in a logical way, like you're putting the pieces of a puzzle together. Do you see the picture? That's what Paul's doing for his Jewish friends. He's taking every one of those prophecies from the Old Testament and lining it up with the life and ministry of Jesus. And see how that lines up? It matches perfectly. He's the one. He really is the Messiah. Then between verses 22 and, 30, and 23, three years pass by. We learn this from Galatians chapter 1. Paul kind of goes back and forth from the city of Damascus out to the, uh, the desert region, out in Arabia, where for three years he learns about Jesus from Jesus himself. So, verse 23, when many days had passed, three years worth of days had passed by, the Jews plot to kill him. Why? Because after three years, it's not just Paul's following Jesus. He's persuaded many other people to follow Jesus too. The man who once tried to wipe out the church is now helping the church to grow. And the Jewish people think, oh, we've got to put a stop to this. So the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. So as his enemies, his enemies were watching the gates of Damascus day and night, looking for an opportunity to catch him and kill him. Yet his disciples, get that? His disciples. Over these past three years, it's not just Paul following Jesus. He's in, in, persuaded a lot of others to follow Jesus. He isn't just being a disciple. He's been making disciples. And now these Christian friends go to bat for him. They took Paul by night and they let him down through an opening of the wall, lowering him in a basket. See, here's his Christian friends carefully packing his parachute so Paul can continue to fly missions for Jesus. And the same kind of help and, and shelter that Paul gets from the church in Damascus, verses 19-25, is the same kind of help and shelter that Paul's going to get down in verses 26 and 30 when he gets in trouble down in the, in the city of Jerusalem. Some of you may remember this. Uh, many, many years ago, we had a missionary come and speak for us here at New Hope. His name was Charles Delaney. He worked for a number of years in the nation of Zambia on the continent of Africa. And Charlie, when I, when I was talking to him when he was here, he said one of the things that he really appreciated about his experience over there in Africa was the people of Zambia have all these proverbs. In fact, he said they, it seems like they got a proverb for every situation of life. I mean, they're all the time quoting these pieces of wisdom that they learn from other people and using those pieces of wisdom to help themselves live a better life. Well, Charlie said out of all the proverbs that he heard over there, the one he liked best was this. When the thorn goes in the toe, the whole body stoops down to pull it out. Think about that. When the thorn goes in the toe, the whole body stoops down to pull it out. Charlie said, I saw that happen all the time. I'd see my friends take a hike in the path there in the jungle, and then they step on a thorn. And, and whenever that happened, it was not, hey, it's just my toe. It's no big deal. I'll, I'll tend to that later. And on they go, and they just kept on walking. Oh, even if it's just a little thorn and a little toe, instantly the whole body stoops down. The whole body begins to work to remove the thorn. And only when the thorn is removed does the whole body go on its way. Charles Delaney says, the reason why I love that proverb so much, because to me, that's a picture of the church. That is a beautiful picture of how God wants the church to operate. Think about it. Sometime over the course of this next year, either you or somebody you know in this church is going to step on a thorn. That thorn may be a broken relationship or the loss of a job. It may be the death of a loved one, or it may be all of a sudden you find yourself trapped in a bad habit or trapped in a particular sin. And no matter how hard you try, you can't break free on your own. 
But it's God's will when you go through that kind of trouble, when you enter in that kind of trial, that members of the church, members of the body of Christ begin to respond and rally around to help remove the thorn. Because what hurts you hurts me. What affects you affects me. We're not supposed to be following Jesus by ourselves. We're supposed to be following Jesus as a church. So when the thorn goes in the toe, the whole body should stoop down to pull it out. Isn't that exactly what we see happening here in Acts chapter 9? Whether Paul's up in the city of Damascus or he's down in the city of Jerusalem, whenever he gets in trouble, instantly the disciples gather around. They begin to go to bat for him, helping him through that trial, doing everything they can to keep him safe so he can carry on and continue to serve Jesus. Our world tells us it takes a village to raise a child. Well, the Bible teaches it takes a church to raise a Christian. And the Apostle Paul is exhibit A of that truth. And if it was true for him, know this. It's true for us, too. You can't follow Jesus by yourself. You need to be constantly surrounded by all kinds of Christian friends. Are you? Are you connected? I mean really connected, firmly and tightly connected to the body of Christ. Let's pray.